Good afternoon and welcome to Taking Ship, a guided cruise through the dumbest timeline in America where everything is made up and the points don't matter. Joining me on the journey are my trusted shipmates, both Frank Spring and Ellie Jacobs, and we finally have a full crew this week. So strap in, everybody. Maggie, Frank, great to be back with you guys. Uh, it was uh, a difficult being away, but uh, a needed respite, I think. Um, with that respite, we also hope that uh, all some of our listeners took their summer vacations seriously and uh, listened, caught up on backlogs, and now have even more of an impetus to leave a review and rate us on iTunes or whatever app they're using to listen to us. And they should also visit our website, which hasn't changed at all, but maybe you just haven't seen it in a while and you forgot what it looks like. It's www.takingship.com and obviously t-shirts are still available. And finally, you can follow all of us on Twitter. You can follow me at Ellie Jacobs, Maggie at Maggie M012, Frank at Frank Spring, and all of us collectively at Taking Ship and that's ship with a P as in pernicious. Um, so let's dive right in. I thought maybe um, because some of us have been traveling or all of us have traveled at various points this summer. Uh, Frank, in particular, you have been doing a great deal of traveling this summer, both for fun and for work. Uh, I thought maybe you could give us kind of your read on what you have learned. Sure. I've spent a fair amount of time traveling around the country and mostly for politics and some for, some for fun and some for fun politics. It's been a mixed bag, uh, but fun and politics are, as we know, two great tastes that taste great together. Uh, like chocolate and peanut butter or uh, whiskey and Drano. So, you know, I think... The, tastes great, less filling? That's exactly right. <laughs> well, yes, Drano is not at all filling. Uh, quite the opposite, I think you'll find. Uh, but I think... I, I don't have a, 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 uh, an overarching, profound insight, but there is one thing that's been pretty consistent over the course of my travels, which is the extent to which seats, local seats and federal seats, you know, local and federal offices in which a Democrat was elected in a tight race in 2016 are barely being contested by Republicans now. This was especially true in some local seats in Washington State where I was briefly, uh, but there have been a number of places uh, where we, what we've seen is Democrats who prevailed by the skin of their teeth in very tight races, either knocking off incumbents or very strong challengers in 2016. And then the Republican Party just isn't able to conjure anyone to run in the incredible candidates in any of those seats. Um, and, and I think this is certainly not a, you know, a, you know, a ubiquitous phenomenon, but I have been really struck by that to the extent that if you were a Democrat and you won a tight race in 2016, not only is the Republican Party not seriously contesting you, they're not, not, not likely to win your seat back. They're not even really trying in a lot of these races. Uh, and, and again, the ones that I'm thinking about specifically are some local races in Washington state. But again, this is a phenomenon that we've seen in parts of New Mexico and parts of Colorado. Uh, and, and I think basically what this, this is a testament of a couple of things. First, the extent to which the political wind is just blowing left, uh, but also the extent to which as the political wind blows left, Republicans, which you often seem to have limitless resources, really don't. And, and they're having difficulty finding good candidates and supporting those good candidates all the way down ballot. So for the first time, geez, in a generation, I feel like mm -hmm. the Democratic Party is in many important places competing at, is at a higher level with respect to recruited candidates and is just as resourced and better organized as Republicans at the local level. Yeah, I was, was just all, gonna, yeah I was just, well, as you were, as you were sort of talking through that, to me, it feels like a real narrative flip in that for so long, you hear about how Democrats have such a shallow bench that we're not getting in on a local level, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah. that now, basically what you were just describing is that it has completely changed, that Republicans aren't even fielding a candidate or they're putting up an empty shirt. 
Um, yeah. and I, I thought it would, that narrative would take longer to flip, but it, it took what, two years? That was so fast. And, and we'll see if it takes too, is the other thing. I mean, this, this may just be a function of where we are now, but, but you're right. That, that's a really good point. If I, had, if I had reversed the parties and said that in about 2007 or 2009, mm-hmm. uh, it, would, it would certainly have been appropriate. Uh, you know, and we were having trouble recruiting people and they had you know, these incredibly well-funded, trained, you know, professional, to use that term, candidates that were coming out of the woodwork to run for state ledge seats and you know, every, you know, every other state level race. And that's just, that is just not the case now. I mean, we've got... And, and again, I think some of it is just the sheer volume of Democrats running for office. Right. There are just a shitload of them. Yeah. I think, I do think that Republic, uh, Republicans do have just like a better general like pipeline and infrastructure. So like working with like paying their interns, for example, like it's a lot easier for them to, to cultivate younger talent and put it into a pipeline uh, with a support system. And I think we're like kind of getting there. The Democrats are kind of doing that. There's a lot more organizations that pop up to, to train candidates and things like that. Um, but with the rest of the infrastructure, just because we have this huge wave, I don't know how long it'll last. That's a, exactly. It's the question is how is what will happen next cycle? And I think this this plays into something you're absolutely right. Demo- the Republican Party has had a much better infrastructure for this stuff historically, for recruiting candidates, for training them, for giving them things to do when they've lost, right? Like keeping them in the pipeline. Democratic Party has has been historically terrible at that. Uh, keeping can- keeping losing candidates in whom they have a long term investment involved, keeping you know uh, pol- uh, uh, political professionals in whom they have a long term investment involved. It's just not something we've ever really done, and the Republican Party has done a really good job of that. Well, now because of the you know the wave and and you know reaction to Trump and and other things, there are a large number there are, again a huge number of candidates and a huge number of organizations that are meant to serve that to serve those candidates in all sorts of ways to recruit them and train them and staff them and help them win in all sorts of ways. Uh, and I think that what we're seeing reminds me of a much larger version of a little bit what happened after 2000 and 2002, where there was this kind of explosion of left-wing groups. And then between 04 and 08, they contracted down into a few. Uh, you know, if anyone was in politics in 2004 will remember, there were so many, and, and I think ACT was the big one that was Soros's group, but like there were so many of these kind of political organizations that had popped up to, to do the job of the Democratic Party. And then most of them were, were gone by 2008. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I think we're going to see that as well, that, you know, of these dozens of organizations that have sprung up to support progressive causes, I think a lot of them are either going to fade away or will combine with each other. And I think that's probably the extent to which we are able to do that and in that pr- manage that process and in that process capture momentum, energy, and resources as opposed to losing it is going to, is going to tell us whether or not we're going to, uh, what, you know, how, how we do in 2020 and whether or not this whether or not this is the beginning of a long-term trend of better Democratic Party politics or, or if it's just to do with this one side. Yeah, I think a lot that's going to have to do with what the win-loss looks like at the end of at, when the dust settles in November 2018, what the win-loss looks like. Um, I think that if things don't work out the way that uh, most people expect them to, I'm still reluctant to be too optimistic at this point. But um, uh, I think if things don't turn out the way that people are, you know, pollsters and everybody else are suggesting it does, we're going to see ugly get even uglier and there's just going to be utter knife fights. So here's hoping that it works out pretty well so that we do see things kind of siphon off and come down to a couple key organizations looking towards 2020. That's a great point. There are a few organizations that I think uh, are, are in this for the long haul. I mean, obviously the campaign committees are, are permanent entities, but you know, there are a few enterprises that I think, I, I hope run for something has, has the staying power. I think they do. 
Uh, I think uh, I think Arena probably does. Uh, you know, they 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 seem to be you know, they they seem to be a, a pretty good shop. Uh, there are a number of organizations that I think have pretty much have their have it together, and I think understand that this is a, a long term, maybe a generational project, and are are capable of maintaining even if things don't go the way that the, that we want them to in 2018, are capable of sticking around. But you're totally right. I mean, so much of this is based on. Uh, is based on enthusiasm and enthusiasm requires reinforcement, right? Like it's yeah. hard for most people in most organizations to maintain focus and energy if they're not getting reinforced for it. And politics doesn't always work like that. Sometimes you work super hard and do a really good job and you just lose. It's the yep. nature of things. That has in fact happened to me. Yes. The other thing about the enthusiasm that is necessary is especially in this moment is the, the, the things that are going to have the staying power, the orgs that are going to actually last are the ones that are not just, resistance only that like we they don't really have their own they can't frame themselves independent of um we are not donald trump that's like well yes i understand that impulse like that's the stuff that's going to disappear really quickly and i don't know if that was also the case in 2004 because i was not politically sentient then i won't tell you what grade i was in but i think that helps um but depending on how they actually brand themselves or what they're aligning themselves for, as opposed to against, I think it's actually going to contribute to like, does, will it last and can it continue to, to build on candidates? Yeah, it's a Absolutely. great point. And their function too. I mean, a lot of them are, I'll give you a good example of an organization that I, that I think definitely has a function and I hope will be resourced to stick around for a long time is the town hall project. Now, uh, you know, that, that started as a, as a spreadsheet. Uh, these, you know, these political professionals just started assembling you know, lists of, you know, where town halls were being held, who had held them and so forth. It's become an advocacy group for, you know, for government, for elect, for the accountability of elected officials. And, you know, they've done some work uh, this summer with uh, March for Our Lives, uh, helping put together these kind of town halls around subjects. You know, so they are, I mean, you know, town hall project is, is meant to be, I, I think at its inception was, a you know, is, it, it is not overtly political in the sense that, um, it's not overtly political in the sense that uh, it is specifically supports Dems or uh, you know or or Republicans. What it's there for is transparency. Uh, but it's, I mean, it it is I think, but it is also not a coincidence that most of the candidates who have done most of the candidates and elected officials who have done a lot of town halls lately have been Democrats, uh, and and a lot of people who are ducking the public right now are Republicans. Truly. Yeah. So anyway, I think this is an example of an organization that. Is is defined by its purpose and its mm-hmm. and its and its and, and serves a very discrete function and I and an important one. So that's that is one yeah. I suspect will probably stick around as opposed to this myriad of like we're all against Trump and we have a Facebook page and maybe a Twitter account and, and something else, right? Like a bunch of those are going to fade mm-hmm. away. Yeah, I think I think the town hall project is a perfect example of sort of like being born or being conceived out of. Um, no, like the resistance S stuff where town halls really became like a central rallying cry, sort of like, you know, the left's version of the Tea Party tactics, like use this, you know, use these tactics uh, for yourself. Um, the thing that I am interested in is so like these are some like groups that are at a more national level. Um, but what do you think is going to happen to all those indivisible chapters with where people who are like running out because they want to get involved and then can they actually organize around a thing? Like, can they then turn it into their version of the town hall project where they like can escape, um, can reach the escape velocity of like, now we are organizing around a purpose. But yeah, I don't know how well any of those chapters are going to work anymore. That is such a good question. And that I, I didn't name them specifically. I, I have seen some of their chapters do, and it really does seem to me very much a chapter by chapter right. 
like they perform on a chapter by chapter basis. I've known some of their chapters have done you know really excellent work. They've organized. They've done things. Uh, and some of them, I, I get the impression, are basically kind of Facebook threads. Sure. Um, and and that's and and that that can kind of have a limited role, but yeah, but but you're right. Like they are, and Indivisible was has already kind of emerged as, and this, not to throw stones at them specifically, but they've already kind of emerged from the from the first kind of the first kind of uh, of uh, of extinction event within the ecosystem on the left, which is a bunch of like that first wave of really fired up, really angry, all digital. Mm -hmm. organizations that popped up in November of 2016, uh, most of which just kind of faded away or recombined or disappeared. So there's already been a mini version of this where you had a bunch of very angry people who were looking to get active and they were looking to get active, I think actually meant just like shit posting in many cases. Sure. Which like, that is also how I get active from time sure. to time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, who amongst us has not been an active shit poster? Uh, but like, but but that's but the different but the difference obviously between that and like actually doing something is pretty stark. So I don't want to throw stones at the people who want who like felt like they wanted to find an online community and vent their rage a little bit. That's perfectly fine. It has to be matched with something else. And a bunch of the organizations that weren't capable of doing that have already kind of disappeared. And a lot of them, I think, ended up being folded into Indivisible or other organizations. So whether if, if Indivisible can can survive post this cycle and certainly post twenty twenty. Mm -hmm. will have done something that I think uh, it will have, it will have broken an historical trend for organizations of its kind. Yeah. And I'm happy. Like I will not, I don't want to come off like I'm complaining about you know, like the rise of these organizations or the rise of all of these democratic candidates. I just don't want us to give up the ball. You know, like I don't want us to fumble now. Like, okay, we have a larger wave of candidates that are coming through. Like we are starting to get that infrastructure. Let's not fuck it up. Please. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This, none of this, I mean, like no stone being thrown at, at any of these organizations at all. Like we're happy to like very happy to have them here. Very happy to have this degree of enthusiasm and resource being like, this is appropriate and awesome. It will, I guess what we're sort of warning is the next phase of this is going to come after November, regardless of what happens. It's just going, it's going to be hard. Uh, nothing. And the other thing is like, so we went into it. So let's say that we went in 2018. Let's say we exceed our wildest dreams in 2018 and we end up with a, a substantial house majority and, and, you know, and win back the Senate. This is not the likely outcome friends. Uh, but let's say we, let's say both of those things happens. Then fucking what? Like there's still an, and I'm not saying this as a, like, I'm not saying this to like, you know, crush our hopes or throw water out. Like that's super important. There's a lot mm -hmm. of good that you can do in a position like that, but we're just getting the hell started here. Uh, and, if we are any, I guess I think the what I was sort of what I what I've been kind of wanting to say here is, right? Politics is very rarely progressive politics, especially very rarely served when it's a short-term proposition. And what we are doing right now, unfucking what happened in 2016, is a generational project. Right. If we don't look at it as a generational project and think about the infrastructure in that way, we're going to do ourselves and a shitload of people who need us a great deal of disservice. Yeah, I think the infrastructure thing is really the important part because I think, you know, go back to Georgia 6, the thing that I keep harping about is that in a lot of these districts where people are really excited and really ginned up, some of them just don't have enough Democrats in them. And people are going to walk away really disappointed because some of them just don't have enough Democrats. And until you really figure out good candidates and figure out a ground game and get people to the polls, you're not going to change a lot of minds. And the number that keeps sticking, sticking with me, the number that keeps sticking with me is uh, Norm Ornstein, um, who's a really smart observer of all things, uh, wrote um, that by 2040 or so, 70% of Americans will live in 15 states, meaning that 30% of the population will be electing 70% 70% of the Senate. 
which is kind of an astounding number. And like that, we're not going to move demographics and suddenly get a ton more people to move to, I don't know, South Dakota or something. But it's a really important number to keep in mind when you start thinking about how we need to be spreading things and how we need to be working on on a 50-state platform. Because right now, if you look at the way the Senate's distributed, yeah, New York, New Jersey, California, great. Like all represented by Democrats, but wide swaths of the country where there's, you know, eight eight people and some goats are represented by two Republicans who have just as much power or more. Yeah. And it's, it is possible for Democrats. I mean, I, you know, as a native of New Mexico, I can say like it is, you know, there is a Western strategy and a, an approach to largely, you know, to, to largely rural states, although most of New Mexico's population lives in, you know, lives in, lives along the Rio Grande Valley, but it is not a, an urban state by any stretch of the imagination has two democratic senators. Uh, Colorado, which has been, I guess, urbanizing as Denver and Colorado Springs have exploded, but is still like a giant state with huge rural populations. One, one Democrat, one very embattled Republican Senator. So it is a possible proposition, but you're absolutely right. Like this is an investment that has to be made and we're going to end up expending a disproportionate amount of time and resource, uh, you know, trying to win back particularly the Senate seats and, uh, you know, in, in, you know, in Western and Midwestern states. And we, and we should, I mean, there's not like we are constrained by the constitution on this one. Like, you know, and what we don't want to get into is a situation where, you know, we are routinely winning winning the house, which is a foreseeable outcome. Uh, and, and the house and the senators forever at odds like that, that could be, yeah. you know, a decades long situation that we, that it is our responsibility to find our way out of. Yep. All right. Well, now that we've discussed a little bit of, uh, sort of the landscape and and our learnings from over the summer in the last few months. Um, I was curious if you guys are paying attention to any specific races that are kind of, I know clearly Batgirl is, but I was wondering if you guys are paying attention to any specific races that might be of interest. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she, can I just say that Batgirl is like fully embodying how my soul feels like that cry? I felt it like that is, I think that's all of us to be quite honest. <laughs> for sure, for sure. This is exactly how, this is, this is how I feel whenever Tucker Carlson pops up in my feed. Don't even get started on that. Oh my I, God. I was gonna edit that out, but now it's just such a good microcosm of the United States of America right now. I think we have to leave, I mean, leave it in. But it is the clarion call. It's the primal howl that defines all progressive politics right now. Exactly. Um, but race-wise, um, one that I am looking at as a proud, proud resident of the Pacific Northwest, although I'm from Oregon as opposed to Washington State, is um, the uh, the election the race um, for Kathy McMorris Rogers' seat. She is the highest ranking Republican woman in um, in the House, and this is supposed to be quite the competitive re-election bid for her, which I don't think she's ever really faced before. I want to say she's been. She's had the seat since 2005. Um, she says that she's trying to look at it. Yeah, she's been in office since 2005. Um, but she has a race against um, Lisa Brown, and um, who was uh, formerly the state Senate Majority Leader and Chancellor of Washington State University uh, in Spokane. So I am keeping my eye on that one, if only because... Um, I, I do love a moment in which there are two female candidates that are running against each other because I have seen so many articles that are like, what do we do if there's two women running against each other? I'm like, you vote for one and one well, of them wins. Well, like they like, well, they like, like combine and like do some kind of power sharing thing. Like what could possibly happen with this? Like what happened? 
like a are they going to start like a book club or something? Exactly. Like, oh what do we do if two women talk together and they're not talking about a man? Right. Who's going to interrupt them if it's only two women? It's like, oh my God. Who will explain politics to them? Truly. <laughs> truly. Oh God. Um, God. Um, so yes, this is, this is definitely I mean, a race. If you got a I, female moderator to that debate, people's minds are just going to explode. Literally, like no one will know what to do with themselves. Like they'll think they'll be watching an episode of Golden Girls. Like they don't like, oh, I didn't know this was on TV today. Like, no. Um, so yes, I got my eye on that one just to see sort of, I always am down to watch a race where it's like, oh, this seat was supposed to be perfectly safe. You're wrong. Mm-hmm. That's a great example. Ellie, where are you on this? And, that, and I actually, I want to go back to that. That was, there, there are a couple of seats out there that are really good examples of like long-term incumbents. The big story, I think, for this cycle has been uh, Republicans retiring, right? Because once you lose the advantage of incumbency, a lot of these seats that should not have been up are extremely up right now. A good example of that would be the Texas 21, where Joseph Kopser is running for what had been Lamar Smith's old seat. Now, that might have been a race if Lamar Smith was was still in it, but he's retiring, which has turned it into a serious race. Um, but Catherine Gorris Rogers is total is totally and unexpectedly vulnerable, and some of this, I think, is the quality of uh, of her opponent. I mean, I think you know, I think the Democrats have put up a really good candidate there for, and I don't want to throw stones at previous candidates, but I mean, this I mean, she's just a better candidate than we've run in that district for a very long time, and she's resourced, and it's you're absolutely right. Like that was one that shouldn't have been in, shouldn't have been in in contention, and extremely is in contention now. It's awesome. Yeah, what was the, I saw some stat. It was if you're an incumbent running for re-election, you have something like an 85% chance of winning your seat. If it's an open seat and two new people are running for it, the incumbent party has less than a 5% chance of keeping it. Seriously? That's crazy. Yeah. I, I, don't know the exa- I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was, a, it was an interview with uh, Josh Holmes, who's one of the, um, green, uh, the Bluegrass Turtles' former chiefs of staff, and the numbers were something like that. Yeah. And you've got to kind of take a little bit of it with a grain of salt in terms of their, like the, the right, problem, of course, yeah. but even so like incumbency is a massive advantage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Max, what were you going to say about, about, uh, about the, uh, about the race and the how, kind of how it's ended up on this, uh, how it's ended up being competitive when it really ought not to have been. Um, I, well, I'm trying to actually look up some specific numbers because it's, it's going, it's running away from me. Um, mm-hmm. But Trump won the district in 2012, and it's an R plus eight, which is bonkers um, to actually then have it be something uh, permit, uh, formidable. Um, what? I'm lose. I lost it. That's okay. Do, do you still have how much he won the district by? Um, I don't have. I, I didn't actually say um, in what I'm looking at right now. Um, but I think that at least as of like, again, and polling is great because it's a snapshot of whatever people are thinking and feeling in that moment, which, you know, don't rest your hat on it. But um, there was a um, Elway research polling firm uh, found that there's a five that, uh, oh yeah, that Brown is within single digits of McMorris Rogers, which is crazy in an R plus eight. And this is true. Like, I mean, those like R plus eight. So for, for our friends who may not necessarily be familiar with this, this is the, uh, the cook reports rating. Of, uh, of you know, in a it's based on registration, past performance, and a in a generic race between a generic Republican and a generic Democrat. This is the built-in advantage that the that a candidate will have. So this is like d- the Kelly Blue Book value kind of thing. It's just a number that everybody uses, whether or not everybody loves it or can p- pick it apart. It's just everybody needs something that they can do apples to apples with. Exactly. And Cook yeah. Political Report is the one that did it. 
Exactly. So it's, you know, so, it, so in a, like a D plus three, for example, it's, it's almost like a handicapping as well. Like a Democrat would start with, with, you know, in, in generic Republican versus generic Democrat, the Democrat would have a three point advantage, right? Mm-hmm. These R plus eight should be in anything, but an absolutely catastrophic year. And R plus eight should be a plus eight should be pretty much bulletproof. Uh, you know, you really want to get into plus 10, but, but R plus eight, like those are the, those are the ones that you don't lose. And, and to have, to have a can, if I were if I were in an R plus eight and I had a candidate behind me in this year who was within single digits and ideally within four or five points, I, at, you know, at this point in August, I would be legitimately terrified because I don't think the trend line is going to be friendly for Republicans for the rest of the cycle. And everything that we've seen in in the uh, special elections and the things that we've seen in the in the primaries, nobody's safe. And you know, I think Paul Ryan's seat is a R plus five. Uh, he's obviously not running again, but you just take that as sort of an example of that nothing's safe, nothing's safe right now. Um, there's a reason that people are so that people are convinced that there's going to be a big blue wave. Yeah, and it's because nobody's safe, and on top of the fact that nobody's safe, we've got what 40 retirements, I think, at this point on the Republican side, and Dems yeah. only need to take back 24 seats, 25 seats, whatever. 23 now. 23 now. 23 now. Yeah, then. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at some, and a lot of those, a lot of the reason a lot of those people are running are not running is because they didn't want to have to fight. I mean, you look mm-hmm. at, you look at Joe Copsper's, uh, Copsper's race. I looked at the numbers a, a couple months ago and I just did, you know, an average. So not mean median, just a straight average of the last, you know, the 20 elections that Smith had won and he had won by an average of 50 points. Yeah. And some of those, they, and, some you know, of the a lot of those didn't run a candidate. Right. A lot of those because they didn't run a candidate, obviously. That's why I say it was just an average. It wasn't, you know, yeah. I, it wasn't, you know, any, any glorious mathematics, but you know, when you're looking at that and if he's running scared, mm-hmm. there's a reason that, uh, uh, uh what's your name in, in Florida is not running again. Nothing is safe. It's like a good theme mm-hmm. till 2018. Just like yeah. the general sort of like, or 2020, I mean, uh, it's just like a good sort of just like, that's what we should all have on bumper stickers. Well, yeah, what we just, yeah, exactly what we want is a generalized anxiety. All right, Ellie, what are your races? What are you looking at? Uh, I, I continue just to be fascinated by M- Montana and Missouri. Um, again, just to sort of, these are the Senate races, right? The Senate races. Yeah. I mean, house races are really, really fascinating to me, but uh, I think to get a better grasp on trying to read tea leaves for 2020 um, and more importantly for Democrats to, I don't think the Democrats are going to take the Senate. Um, I'm just looking for them not to lose too much. Um, These two Senate seats are obviously two of the most vulnerable because uh, um, uh, Trump won Montana by 20 points, I think, and Missouri by something not that far off from that. And testers, um, uh, obviously under, under fire because uh, he was the, uh, he's the vice chair of the, of the Veterans Committee and Trump went after him during the whole Ronnie Jackson thing. And he's been after uh, McCaskill for, since the get-go. And she has done some things that have made campaigns against her a little bit easier. Um, but I think just in, in general, those two states and those two races in particular, more than any of the other uh, tough blue defense races are ones that I'm take, paying really close attention to. Those are really good examples. The Missouri one, I think, is fascinating because it's a good illustration of of what of the way that political momentum plays out. Because McCa- this this should have been McCaskill should have been just incredibly vulnerable in this cycle. I mean, you know, Missouri. I think Trump won Missouri by something like eighteen points. I mean, it was out of it was out of control. 
um, or that, that yeah that that may not be quite as it may not be quite as high as that. The, the reason, sorry, my the, my math behind that is that uh, is that Jason Kander ran 16 points ahead of Hillary Clinton and lost by two. Uh, to uh, to Blunt, so that's where that math comes from. If that if I'm wildly off, anyway, he won Missouri fairly substantially. This should have been a really really troubling race for uh, uh, for McCaskill, but her opponent has is infamously is weird is infamously lazy, inf- like won't raise money, won't campaign, just is not doing a good job. And he was like he was widely thought of as being like this you know as being someone who could really challenge her. Yeah, he and was the chosen one. Was the chosen one, and it was taking place in the context of the utter collapse of the Missouri uh, GOP, mm-hmm. as their you know as you know as the as their standard bearer Eric Greitens, the governor, you know has has left under indictment for blackmail and a sex crime. Like it was, I had completely uh, forgot that happened this year. Yeah. Oh yeah, I, mean, that's, <laughs> I totally that's, forgot that happened. This year. That is the most 2018. Like in any other year, we'd all be talking about nothing else. Right. Except how this giant weirdo got turfed out of the uh, or had to be had to be taken out of the governor's office effectively. Not exactly in a perp walk, but pretty close to it. Pretty close. Um, yeah, exactly. Because again, like, because he engaged in it. Because he uh, what was he? he imprisoned a woman as part of a uh, you know yeah. as part of a sex crime, and then blackmailed her with the photos. Yeah, right. not great. Just not great. It's not, it's not a great look. And by <laughs> the way, I have to say, we dodged a bullet on that guy because he was he. Like, that guy was troubling my sleep since 2016 because he was alarmingly plausible, like just incredibly credible and completely devoid of any morals. Yeah. Uh, and and people like that are absolutely dangerous. I was absolutely terrified of his future, but fortunately, he's gone. And it's this weird thing, right? Where you would say, like, and now we can just focus on Chris Kopech. Yeah, that's yeah. Well, we can, oh my God, well, we'll, you know, we'll get him eventually. But like, but it's this weird way that political momentum plays out, where where like you could say, well, that's just a, like who could have foreseen that? And yet, that is a story that is happening across the country in one form or another unsuitable Republicans getting into races they should be competitive in and blowing them up for the party, right? Like, like, like luck is just right now and, and luck doesn't bear much talking about. So I won't go on this point for too long, but luck right now is just breaking against Republicans. Not, a, not a hundred percent across the board, but in more places than it should, right? The dice aren't coming up their way this time. And I think that that's the result of a, I think a stru- of structural factors as much yeah, as anything. You'd think they would have figured some of that out after the Todd Akins and, and Christine oh, O'Donnell God. stuff. <laughs> this is it. But this is it. Like the board group. Hmm? Yeah. What is happening in Missouri? Can like Missouri get a grip, please? Like Todd Akin, the governor. It's like, wow. Okay. There's something strange going on there. But the other thing about the Republican candidate being, a, being lazy is that Claire McCaskill is a campaign machine. Yeah. She She's does not get around. True. Like she does, she like, you know, she does more campaign events before you get up and have breakfast. Like, <laughs> Oh hell yeah! Yeah, she can crank that shit out. Yeah, she's done. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she's no. This is a little bit like Joe Manchin, and whatever else we may say about Joe Manchin of West Virginia, I will say this: people who end up, people who oppose Joe Manchin, end up in slurry ponds. Like this is <laughs> do not bet, do not bet against the guy. Like you will end up down a mine shaft. It's not pretty. Uh, and and I and McCaskill's the same way. Like you will, like you will be found floating down the river face down. Oh yeah, because she yeah. will, she will grind you into yeah. dirt. Yeah. Um. Wow, that got that got dark. Yeah, um, <laughs> but appropriately so. Good. This is, this is our oh. politics as justified theme podcast, friends. Truly. Welcome to it. Talking about two coal states, so yeah, it, yeah. It, it warrants it definitely. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Frank, what about you? What are you, what are the what are the ones that you're keeping your eye on? I'm looking at so so not to indulge in too much homerism. I'm not going to talk about any of the the races that I've been 
fortunate enough to work with this time, but but there are but it but that has helped me understand a couple of things about what else is uh, some races that I do want to talk about. The big one, a couple well, a couple of them that I think are, are relevant here is the Montana at large, uh, which is so Montana has one uh, you know one house seat. Uh, that one, uh, Greg Gianforte won it uh, last time after uh, choke slamming a reporter. Uh, this one, honestly, like that just didn't. Montana at at large really didn't feel like it should have been a competitive race this time. It just seemed like Montana, at least below, uh, at least, you know, at least below the Senate level, was beginning. To tr- was starting to trend a little bit the wrong way. Uh, uh, that is just not true. Kathleen has done a terrific job. She's a candidate, I think, just extremely uh, professional, not in a in a pejorative sense of like a professional politician, but just disciplined, focused. Uh, fun, you know, I mean, see, there, there are times when she seems to be enjoying her campaign a lot. Uh, she's run some campaign ads that have been a, t- a tad on the corny side, but in an appealing way, right? Like she's clearly up, she's clearly up to do whatever she needs to in order to connect with voters. And that's really, really important. So Montana at large is, is, is a, is a winnable race for, uh, for Democrats. And that's entirely like there's structural factors at work there, but that's credit to the candidate and her team. They're doing a great job. We've talked about the Kentucky six, but I, I just keep wanting to come back to this. I mean, that, Lexington is a Democratic town, but the idea of being able to knock off a Republican incumbent like, you know, like Andy Barr uh, is, I mean, that's a huge deal. And to have it as a, by a, as a, as a possibility with a political first timer like Amy McGrath, uh, I mean, there's so many things that she has done well and that campaign has done well. Uh, but they're more than just, I mean, you know, after that ad came out and we've talked about the, the ad told me before, it's a, it's, it's a great ad. I, but teach it in trainings and so forth. It's a great example of political storytelling. Um, but, but that wasn't just a flash in the pan. I mean, she has been a sustained political force for a long time. That's a winnable race. Uh, Texas 23, Gene Ortiz Jones, we've talked about her. That one to me is the one that said, like that, that is just, that is kind of the encapsulation of what, of what's happening. Gene Ortiz Jones is another one of these candidates that any district in the country would be, would be lucky to have her as its candidate, right? Like she's just, she's thoughtful. She has a, she's a good storyteller. She's a good communicator. Um, and, and the idea of that, and that, and that is a seat that, yeah, you know, maybe sometime four, six, eight years from now, we all sort of thought, yeah, we could probably win that thing. That is extremely in play now. And I think she's got a good shot at winning that thing. Uh, and that's just, that's a, that's a good one that I think, Maybe one strictly, maybe one by structural factors, but again by the talent of the candidate. So that's been kind of the theme that I'm talking about here. I also I would be wrong in in not singling out, um, you know, again because this is a New Mexico Homer podcast, New Mexico Congressional District Two, Social Torres uh, Small is doing a just a terrific job in terms of just being everywhere that she needs to be. Uh, very energetic, very good communicator. So you've got a lot of high quality candidates that are putting races into play that honestly. You know, some of them are running against, uh, you know, some of them are, are running in open seats, but some of these things just honestly, like Kentucky Sixth is a good example of this. Like that is a seat that shouldn't have been competitive for years that is now winnable based on the quality of the candidate as well as the structural factors. Like those, I, I think those four yeah. that I'm looking at. Um, and using the Kentucky Sixth example, I don't know if y'all seen um, the attack ad that her opponent, what's, what's his name? Sorry. Barr. Barr. Uh, Barr ran Andy. an ad against her. Um, and it, the same thing has happened to Ocasio-Cortez, like um, in, that, in the attack ad, basically this like ominous voice is like, she is pro-choice. She is for immigration. And it's like, they basically lay out what like the liberal pl- platform is. It's like, well, yeah. Like there's a clip of her being like, hell yeah, I'm a feminist. And that's like the thing that they are like saying is bad about her. And it's like, you do realize that like, 
you're basically just like outlining their platform. It's like, can you imagine a world in which everyone has healthcare? And we're like, that's what we're fighting that's for. Like, it's really fine. strange. And like, I think there's a graphic that Tucker, maybe, uh, Sean Hannity, Hannity did. Yes. Yeah. For, <laughs> for uh, Casio-Cortez. And it's like, yes, wouldn't all of these things be nice? Like a livable wage. It's like, it's just been a weird like flip of like liberals then look at that and they're like, Yes, actually, that is exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, there was some Daily Caller reporter that went to uh, an Ocasio-Cortez rally and wrote it up. And like she had some comment like, these people are all supporting things that make sense. Yeah. She, but the part that I like is where she talks in that, in that God, I, I love the right wing's response to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been one of my favorite things from this cycle. But that was so good because she was like, and when I was there in that enthusiasm, I could almost see how you could get behind some of this stuff, how you could get behind free college and like affordable healthcare. And I'm like, yeah, it's, you know, I'm, I'm glad you, you could stretch to the idea that people should be able to get an education and get healthcare without plunging into debt and dying in the street. Like, I, I, you know, it pleases me that you had that degree of, of uh, mental and moral flexibility, but then turns away from it, you know, and goes back to, of course, embracing the right and true path that we must all follow, which is, of course, again, the one where we have a healthcare system that produces medical bill related bankruptcy as if that was the purpose for which it was designed. Right. Like when you're hearing about like, oh, I could almost imagine how well, someone could get behind this. Good. Yes. Yeah, yeah you're, doing, good. You're, you're, you're doing great. You're doing great. And oh, that, oh, good. Uh, You've met another person. I know. That's exactly. And that thing, I'm really glad you pointed out that one about the attack on uh, what that what that tells you is this is a person who doesn't have a per, like Andy Barr's attack on uh, on uh, on Amy McGrath. That tells you this is a person who doesn't have a persuasion universe. I mean, he is like right. that is a straight red meat base riler. And to mm -hmm. be honest with you, like I I wouldn't claim to be an expert on Lexington, Kentucky. I haven't spent that much time there, although I did do politics there in 2014. Uh, but that is not necessarily a place where identifying a woman as a feminist is going to get you a lot of votes you didn't already possess. Exactly. Yeah. So then it's like, you just look kind of stupid. Like, or it's like, unless he feels like he has to do that to, for some reason to appeal to his base, otherwise they just might stay home. Yeah. And that's, and, and that's ultimate. That is exactly. And, and you've, you've, you have entirely put your finger on it. Like this is what we're seeing across the country is the enthusiasm gap, which is usually, usually the thing that undoes Democrats in midterm years mm -hmm. uh, is not going, it does, it just doesn't seem to be materializing them. Dems are, are fired up. We have, our base is, is more active than it has been in the past. Uh, are, we have persuasion universes for all these really high quality candidates and the Republicans are just, are, are, are clearly worried about getting their people out. And some of that is, is the political win, but some of it also is their Republic. What we've seen in some of the research is their numbers are being eroded both by messaging that is coming out of the Democratic Party and other sources, and and just by a general sense that these people are are corrupt, and I don't mean corrupt in the sense of like they are taking bribes, although some of them or their staff have. Uh, David Schweikert in the Arizona Six is a really good example of this. He's, he had to fire his chief of staff, I think, last month because his chief of staff used public funds to fly a bunch of people to the Super Bowl, took a bunch of campaign money that he shouldn't have. That's I mean, literal corruption in that case. Was but that corruption? Wrong? Should, he not, should he not have done that? Should we? Should we not? Have, yeah, exactly. Should wait? Are you? Are you? Are you saying I shouldn't have taken everyone I know to a performance of Hamilton? Uh, you know, on the pub, on the public nickel because I work for the uh, I work for a congressman. Actually, he would never take anyone to Hamilton. But you take my point. Um, what, but that's one kind of corruption, but the way that voters see it, especially Obama-Trump switchers, this is a really interesting thing that's popped up in the research. Uh, Obama-Trump switchers see corruption as a much bigger phenomenon, that it's not just about people taking money. It's about, you know, people, legislators making decisions based on the interests of corporate lobbyists 
and and donors, right? Like that's they, they, they're not doing the work of the people. They're doing the work of, of moneyed special interests. And this is cutting actually pretty deep into whatever persuasion universe that Republican candidates might have and is even cutting into the base a little bit, just turning people off. This is why we saw the, the uh, you know, an, an ad that was a, gen- a generic anti-Republican ad um, that came out. I think it was, was it House Majority Pack who released it? Um, yeah, How, last, last, week. last week. Yeah, yeah. The one yeah, where, yeah. My, my, when I watched it, my comment was, oh, look at that. Democrats have grown some hair on their nethers. Yeah, there's, it I mean, it was surprising to see an ad like that come from the Democrats and, and I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah, and it's and it's clearly based on that thing. It you know goes back. It's you know one of these ominous like these you can't trust these people. Which fair enough. Uh, going back over you know Hastert and his scandals, Jim Jordan and his scandal, like just going up. And the whole point is like they these went back people to are, Gingrich and Livingston, and I mean they Gingrich. Yeah, these people. Have, yeah, these people have been. Yeah, these people have been corrupt and untrustworthy from the beginning. Is kind of the point of the ad. Uh, well, and that well, is clearly when, based when on you this think problem. about you know when you looked at you know the, the cross tabs and exit interviews and everything else about Trump and why people supported and particularly the Obama to Trump people, um, it was because they looked at the Republican Party as not having their best interests in mind and all the things that you just said essentially. So of course they're going to be turned off by people that are right back into that rigmarole that they may or may not still think that Trump floats above, but regardless they have no time or patience for it when it comes to candidates that they may elect. That's a ringing endorsement from Batgirl. She fully agrees. And who? Yes, that's it. And who wouldn't? Uh, but but none more none more eloquently than speaking Batgirl. of bats and other things contained within clothing. Frank, let's talk about going back to your home state. Uh, the, the trench coat full of ferrets that we call Gary Johnson. Yes, yes. I, I first of all, I. I you had no idea where the, I was going. Before the, the heat of that, the power of that segue, sir, we are as but the We beast. are surrounded by smoke from the, the like hitting the brakes and turning yeah, into a new topic. That segue was amazing. I, I am just, I'm a gog. Okay. All right. Terrific. Yes. Let's talk about, yeah. Let's talk about Gary Johnson, whom I once publicly described as a, uh, as a bunch of ferrets in a trench coat. Gary Johnson, the former governor of my home state, uh, has gotten into the U.S. Senate race in New Mexico against Martin Heinrich. The libertarian candidate, Aubrey Dunn, uh, uh, left the race. Uh, he resigned. He, he vacated his candidacy, probably in, you know, with the idea that Gary Johnson might get in and also because I think he was finding it not a great use of his time and he had no chance of winning or even making a political statement. So he got out in favor of Gary Johnson. And so now Gary Johnson is in. There was a week after Dunn left uh, when Johnson was toing and froing. He decided he'd get in. He will run against incumbent uh, U.S. Senator and Democrat Martin Heinrich and uh, a Republican named Mick Rich, who is a um, uh, sort of generic Republican business asshole. Is his name actually Rich? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like Richie Rich? Yes. I yeah, love he's... that movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and you, then you're then you're not gonna like the sequel, Mick yeah, Rich, which is boring and 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 just pompous and boorish and self satisfied, uh, and just and and Rich's can Rich's candidacy hasn't gotten off uh, hasn't gotten off the ground. Uh, he's he's not a good candidate. He's not a good fit for New Mexico. Uh, it is he has it, it has just not been a good race for him. Uh, so anyway, Gary Johnson is in. That will liven up that race a little bit. Uh, in the event that Rich leaves, which is possible, I guess, um, in the event that Rich leaves, uh, it'll make it a head-to-head with Martin Heinrich between between Martin Heinrich and Gary Johnson, which makes that race a little bit more real. Martin's a very good—I mean, he, he's he's a very good campaigner. He's a he's a smart guy. 
Um, he's an energetic character. I think he, I mean, he, he should be fine, but that could suddenly become an actual race as opposed to being uh, asleep for the, as opposed to what it's been, which has been basically kind of a snoozer for the last 15 months. Um, Gary Johnson's always struck me as remarkably lazy. He is. And, 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 and he, as a governor of New Mexico, he really, I mean, he made kind of laziness a kind of, I, I mean, I don't want to say laziness because he was, he was, he was actively energetically inactive. Uh, if, you know, if that, if that sort of makes any sense, a kind of like he, there, he was held in contempt of court as governor of New Mexico because he refused to do even the most basic duties of the office uh, because that was his whole thing as a, as a kind of libertarian Republican was, you know, an anti-government Republican as I am. There was a year when he didn't sign anything the legislature passed at all. Any bill that came before him, he, see, he refused to sign it as a matter of principle. That's basically uh, like the Ron Swanson method. Right? Exa- yeah, that's exactly, that's, that's exactly right. Like, it's just like, we're not going to do anything. It's sort of, uh, it's what they used to say about uh, Calvin Coolidge, that his presidency was one of watchful inactivity because he believed very powerfully that the government shouldn't do anything. So Coolidge, this is true, used to sit in the Oval Office and in the afternoon would count the cars that were driving down Pennsylvania Avenue. Because, because his idea was that's what the president of the United States should do. That it is so important that I not do anything that I'm going to deliberately waste time in the most performative way possible. That was essentially the principle of Gary Johnson, except he was a lot angrier and meaner about it. Uh, and defunded a lot of people, defunded a lot of programs that did a lot of people a lot of good. Uh, it turned out he wasn't against wasting money on private prisons. He was super good on that. Uh, that was a that was a big thing for him. But anyway, he, but basically, my theory about him is that he didn't. He wasn't actually a libertarian from the start. He was a, an angry anti-government Republican who was really bad at governing and just decided to rebrand himself as a libertarian. He's like, oh, I'm not shit at this at all. This is actually part of some carefully considered set of principles instead of me just being a colossal dumbass. <laughs> I do like that the that the central tenet of libertarianism is just like strategic laziness. Yeah, and, and I'm behind that, honestly. Like, doing nothing is a strategy that, that gets a bad rap, but it's often a much better, better idea than it's given credit for. But, you, but it's an indulgence, and you've got to use it carefully. You can't just make it the centerpiece of your life. I know that, like, everyone talks in, about this when they're, when they're bringing up libertarians, but it's also like, then why are you running for office at all? Like, do, like if you don't think the government should do anything, like, why are you then validating what the government does by participating in that system as opposed to like not driving on the roads that the government has paid for you and not using the banks and government currency. It's like, come on friends. Yeah. but and, yeah, This is exactly it. But, and, and I think in, you know, in Gary Johnson's case, the, you know, the smoking gun on that one was at least behind his original candidacy. And keep in mind, like, I know I've said a lot of things about the guy. I will say more. I have, just no time for the idea of him as anything other than a political clown. My state did elect him governor twice. Uh, so th- that we did it once, yeah, maybe you can let us off the hook for it. We did it again, that's on us. Uh, but, but the smoking gun on that one is there was money to be shipped to private prisons. I mean, like, the, honestly, like, why are you doing this? Because, there's, because there are people who have, because there are people who can make money. Uh, you know, it's, they're not against the government spending money, they're just against the government spending money delivering public goods itself when someone else could be doing it at a much higher profit. 
And why is Gary Johnson doing it now? Because he liked the attention he got as a libertarian candidate, as he sort of transformed himself into this weird cartoon character that would go around, you know, giving lectures to a bunch of like starry-eyed 20-year-olds, which of course is the best audience you can possibly have for libertarians, because libertarianism is a kind of, is a, is a teenager's and a young person's political, and a very young person's political belief, not what you do if, you've, if you're matured at all. Um, he, miss, he misses that attention. That's why he's doing this. And again, because if everything breaks right, you know, again, if he were against a lesser opponent, I think he he might be able, he might have a shot at this thing. Even then, he could make it a real race just because he is who he is and he's got money behind him. Yeah, libertarians only function with new members after they depend on folks that are finishing the Fountainhead for the first time. That's yes, that's that's precisely it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I have, I have, uh, yeah, uh, I, you know, people for whom John Galt appears to be something other than. Just someone that ought to be just packaged up in a barrel and tossed over the side. <laughs> that would take, that's just too much effort because you've gotten a boat and you've gotten a barrel and you've heaved him somewhere. Like that's all just too much. It's more than, more, more than John Galt deserves. And yeah. there may be something in that. Speaking of too much, mm. friends, friends, I, I have a, I, I'd, like, I'd like to seek your opinion and, and insight on, on something I feel very powerfully about. And that is that there is just too much of things these days. Stay with me on this rant for a moment, why don't you? Actually, is this a segment called to... Get Off My Lawn? Get Off My Lawn. Yeah, this, oh, this is 100% old man yells at cloud. All right, let's do this. There yeah, are too many states. Get... Please eliminate then, three. I am not yes. a crackpot. <laughs> yes. yes. Okay, yes, this is your I am not a crackpot. We're here yeah, for you. This is a, I am not a crackpot. But I, I think you can all join us for our crackpottery on this one. So I watched A Quiet Place last night. Liked it a lot. Excellent picture. Uh, so much that's good about it. I don't actually want to talk about the film itself, although I could because I thought there was just a, it had a lot going for it. But what I really liked about it is that was a tight picture. There was if I watched it with my most cynical and jaundiced eye, I could probably find five, maybe maybe ten extraneous minutes. Probably not that many. Five to ten extraneous minutes in that picture. Otherwise, every second of that film was either building character, advancing the plot, or maintaining tension in an active and useful way. Right? Like there is not an ounce of fat on that picture. And it, and what really struck me about it is how rare that is, especially for popular entertainment. And I know it's the summer. I know there there are summer blockbusters, and summer blockbusters are are often famously bloated. Um, you know, go back to the pot boilers of the 1960s. Anyone who is you know, seen any of the sword and sandal epics that were mass entertainment in the 1960s knows from wasted time. Uh, but nonetheless, like there is so much in popular entertainment these days where the bloat is the point, right? Like there is an argument to be made that's, that the Star Wars series now has an entire film that is completely extraneous, not just minutes, but an entire edition that is totally unnecessary. And this is true pretty much across the board of, and, and I think some of this is a function of uh, some of this is a function of, of the making of big sprawling series like the Marvel Avengers series and so forth. There's just so much stuff crammed into these things right now. I didn't, I, I guess I wasn't prepared for how refreshed I would be to see something that was just like, we have a limited, we have a story we're going to tell. It's a limited story. We're going to tell it. We're going to tell it well. We're going to tell only that story. We're going to maintain tension and then we're getting the hell out. Uh, and the film ended not one second after it had to. Bam. Like last shot done. We're out of here. It was just great. Um, and, and totally refreshing, and, and I now shake my fist at all the bloated clouds of entertainment out there that are, that are wasting all of our time. There's too much of everything these days. I 100% agree in that there's too much of everything, but the idea of, first, I love that you call them pictures. I think that that is very endearing. Like, the pictures, I, like, I'm glad you didn't call it a talkie. 
first of all. So like, let's just start Important there. distinction. Silent film is a vital medium that may yet make its return. Don't at me. <laughs> um, but yeah, I hear you on the sort of like the gluttony of a movie. And like, yeah, you can have a really long film that um, doesn't have you wondering what time it is. Like it, it matters about pacing and it matters about like what story you're actually trying to tell. That it has a goal and it's sticking to the goal. The runtime of A Quiet Place is an hour 30. It's a tight 90. You want a script and a plot so tight you can bounce a quarter off it. 90 minutes, yeah. ratchet the stakes up to 11 and then get the fuck out. You have to take it, you have to escalate, escalate, escalate. And then once you get there, then it's over. Um, so I respect that kind of narrative arc um, in, in film uh, or in uh, theater, anything like that. A tight 90, I wanna bounce a quarter off my pop culture. Otherwise, I don't know why we're here. Yeah. It just, I mean, so much of this stuff seems constructed just to occupy time for its own sake, right? Like this, like the stuffing of, of films. And again, like I'm throwing stones at the Avengers series, which actually has a lot of great films. And, and like, but, but even then it's like, wow, like this, a lot of this stuff feels honestly pretty unnecessary and, and, you know, and doesn't really ser serve to advance the plot very much. The exception to this that you brought up, Maggie, when we were talking before, the, before we started recording uh, is, is Black Panther. Yeah, to me, Black Panther, I, so I'm not a big superhero movie fan. It's just, it's just not my thing. Um, but I went to go see Black Panther, and what I appreciated is that um, so much of the plot, um, every location they were in was in service of the plot. So it wasn't like a sprawling origin, it was, but it was very much a, um, a practical origin story. Predominantly takes place in Wakanda. Um, the only times that you are jumping backward in time is to learn something that informs uh, the forward motion of the plot. Um, and they did not worry about incorporating the larger worlds so that it can fit in with a sprawling superhero universe. It was really tightly focused on one place, one story at a time. And like, yeah, they had that little thing at the end credits um, to like tie it into another world. But like the Infinity Wars stuff, there's a zillion characters in there. Um, therefore, you care about none of them. Um, and this movie didn't really have that problem. No, that's right. And that was a that, that film was two hours and fifteen. So you can do not you know, so you can do a, a comparatively long picture, uh, but you can do it tightly if you understand if you're not just jamming it with stuff because you assume that what the audience is there for is is fan service, right? Like we don't need every mystery solved. We don't need to know where everyone comes from. It's fine. One of the great things that I would think that I would say about the wire, and because this is a podcast full of white people, people, it was inevitable that we start talking about the wire. We are, you know, urban dwelling white folks. It's part of our like it comes like when you move to an urban area, you know, or you know, as a you know, as a white person, they eventually like you get like your DVD set or your subscription to you know to watch it on HBO. Yeah, even uh, us, we're not above the policy. No, no, that's yeah, that's exactly right. One of the great things about that show is that people is that characters would come into the show. And they would be really strong, compelling, interesting, involving characters. And then they would just then they would they would do whatever they were there to do, and then they would leave. And you didn't have we, we never really knew particularly where Brother Muzon came from or any of these other characters. Fine, we didn't need to. Who cares? Like they're there to do a thing to maintain tension to be interesting characters, and then they leave. Like we don't need to have fucking backstories on everyone. So this is part of it. The other thing that I wanted just to rail about, this has been going around on Twitter, but I wanted to give my enthusiastic endorsement of this. If you're putting up a recipe on, uh, on, you know, online on a blog, just give us the damn recipe. I don't need to read 600 words. And I mean, like, do you or do you not have a better way to make a puttanesca sauce? Because if you do, I want to know it. And if not, we're all just jerking off. I also don't want to hear about your life-changing vacation to Italy where you learn. Now, I'm trying to cook. Yeah. I don't have time for this. 
Yep. Same thing with same thing with Instagram. Like a hashtag and like maybe like three three words. Maybe tag where you took the picture. You know, I don't need a page and a half of what filter you used on your iPhone and who wasn't in the picture because you had had breakfast with them earlier in the day and they were having an off off day because their dog hadn't slept the night before and hashtag sleepy dog or whatever. Like no, just stop it. Give me what I need. Get out of get out of get out, and then get out of fucktown. Come on. Yeah. It's just it's easier than ever. It's easier than it's ever been to express yourself and have other and force other people to listen to your thoughts. So, like, uh, what you're saying. See the people having a podcast. Yeah, we're conscious that we are the exception to this. There is not enough of this podcast. I refuse to hear otherwise. We're just giving the people what they want. Our podcasts are between an hour and a half and two hours in length, in which it's just the three of us yelling. Yeah, we really are forced to do this. We are forced. History calls. Exactly. I mean, it's just, it's just so much easier to express yourself more than ever. So people feel the need to then do it all the time. And it's like, I don't really want to hear about that. It's like a conference call that never ends. Yeah. yeah there, was a, there, there was an epic thing. My wife talks about this periodically. There was a thing that uh, Paula Dean, one of her recipes was for uh, like peas or something like that. And the recipe, like it was this lengthy write-up of a whole thing of how she came up with the recipe. And then the recipe itself was can of peas open onto cooking butter or something like that. It was like butter and peas. That was the whole thing. But the comment section is just absurd. Somebody was like, oh, you know, my husband loved this recipe so much, but I swapped out peas for Doritos and used like pizza instead of butter or something like that. It was like just dragging on the fact that Paula Dean had gone on for like three pages about like how this represented, I don't know, slave ownership or something, whatever the hell that she was up to that week. Was it, didn't she have a whole thing where she got caught up in a um, whole? Yeah, she 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 did a, a number she of did racisms. A, she she did a bad she did a bad one. <laughs> she did a, yeah she did a racism actually she did several racisms. Yeah, yeah. But yes, I, the 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 recipe thing get drives drives me in, in, entirely nuts. Like it it, it and it, yeah, it's the little things that drive me crazy as opposed to like the bigger things. I'm really an equal opportunity person to be to have things drive me crazy big small all of them um so yeah i'm not worried about it at all um yeah well so you know in in vain of that in, in, in of the big and the small and again i'm going to take the wheels and, and and do like just the, the just the, the the jackknife of the uh, of the turn here but uh we were talking about this earlier also and we really wanted to to, to get some clip on it, but as one of us, me, forgot to press record, so you're just going to have to listen to the conversation now. Uh, we were talking about the little things that Donald J. John Trump does that drive us crazy, as opposed to like the big things, the racism, the xenophobia, the potential, you know, the potential to end the world, changing of norms, all that kind of stuff. And one that I've mentioned on the podcast before, and I will mention again, is it infuriates me that in pictures that he takes in the Oval Office, he is always sitting and the people around him are always standing. It drives me nuts. It's absurd. Speaking of actively lazy, like that is actively lazy. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, you gotta be yeah, actively lazy, my God. Like, I mean, you know, this is, you know, this, this is the man who, again, believes the human life is like a battery, the human body is like a battery has a finite amount of energy, and if you use too much of it, you die early. Oh, God. I think my thing is his stunning lack of um, physical awareness. The way that he how, how he looms and how he stands, uh, like when he was standing behind Brett Kavanaugh uh, during the announcement, how he sort of like has his hands straight by his sides and like weirdly leaning backwards. Same thing when he was kind of following Hillary Clinton around the debate stage, like his looming physical presence is just, is that of a elongated toddler? 
<laughs> That's exactly right. He's like a character actor badly playing a goon. Exactly. It's so creepy and I hate it. And I, all, I feel like the entire Trump family does that. That kind of like weird, slightly lean back, chin a little too high. Yeah. I hate it. Arms straight down like no one ever stands ever. No, people did stand like that when like you had to stand perfectly still for five minutes to have the picture develop. And like, it just goes back to Trump's obsession with like ancient Royal British family pictures. Like that's just what they're trying to do. It's like a daguerreotype of the, you know, of the Romanovs. Yeah. There's something in that. Yeah. 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 Now the thing that I don't get about this guy and it just, Oh my God. Why can't this son of, why can't he get a tailor? Why must his suits be these circus tents? I just don't understand it. Like this man is, this is the vainest man who has ever occupied that office. And that is up against some pretty stiff competition. Why can his vanity not extend to getting a suit that actually looks like something as opposed to being this like billowing ass 90s style, like 80s and 90s style, like giant fucking thing that he's just drowning in. I do not understand it. His, tra- his, shirts are, his, uh, his jackets are too big. His trousers are way too long. They pull at his feet. What the hell is wrong with this guy? I think I do have an explanation is that he is in fact three toddlers stacked on top of each other. Yes, that, uh, that's as good an explanation as any and better than most. It's literally three toddlers decided they were going to get in their dad's suit. So they went into the closet, but they didn't really fit. So they're just like, yeah, it's fine. Let's it's just fine. go with it. Yeah. No, I am the president of the United States, not three toddlers stacked on top of each other. No, sir. Absolutely not. All right. Everybody feel better? I feel a lot better, honestly. <laughs> that, that was good. That was, that was, yeah, that was yeah. good. I feel good. <laughs> Do you feel better? We are not crackpots. That girl feels better. Great. All right. Uh, with that, I think I'll, we'll, take, we'll, we'll, we'll take our leave at this point. Uh, please do subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever else you listen to this wonderful podcast. Please get some friends to listen. Get them to subscribe and rate us as well. Uh, even if it's hate rating, we still appreciate the ratings. Um, follow Maggie at Maggie M012, Frank at, at Frank Spring, me at Ellie Jacobs, and of course, uh, the collective, uh, like the Borg, at, uh, at taking ship, and that's ship with a P as in puritanical. Uh, with that, Frank, Maggie, where are we taking ship this week? Uh, friends, we take ship this week. Uh, actually, we're not going far. Uh, we take ship this week simply down to the beach uh, to, uh, to, you know, to answer, uh, to answer a question and, uh, and to, send a, to send an important message. So I was very touched uh, by the surprisingly large number of you who sent me the sa- who sent me either a screen grab or a link to the same uh, the, the same article from Vanity Fair, uh, asking me if I had taken a job as an editor writing subheads for Vanity Fair. So I will read you this very quickly. Uh, Vanity Fair ran a piece that was titled "This: Jennifer Garner was rescued from the sea by a handsome Swedish adventurer." Right, this is the title. Uh, it has uh, a, it has a subhead. Uh, so Jennifer Garner was rescued from the sea by a handsome Swedish adventurer. Subhead. Will the sea, denied yet another salt bride, seek its revenge? I love how many of you sent this to me. It, it warms my heart so very much. You are the finest crew anyone could ask for. Uh, the answer is yes. The sea will certainly seek another salt bride. That is all it does. That is all it knows. I did not write this, sub, this subheading. I wish I had. It's brilliant. Uh, clearly, this writer understands more than anyone the danger that the, uh, the, sea, fa- that the sea poses. So we're going down to the beach. Uh, just to let the sea know, we know it's out there. We see it. It's on notice. We know it. Will, you didn't get Jennifer Garner this time, but we know you're coming and we'll be ready next time. That's our message to the sea. And I just want to thank again all of you who sent this to me. It was wonderful.
Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.